Let's pray together. Indeed, O Lord, show us Christ. Let every one of us see that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies, and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And Father, we ask you to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most obvious trends in American life over the last century has been the increase in the delay of marriage. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 1950, the average age for first marriage was 20 years old for women, 23 years old for men. And those numbers stayed about the same for about three decades, but something began to change in the 1980s and the 1990s and in the 2000s. The average age for first marriage started to tick steadily upward. So by 2017, last year, the average age of first marriage for women was 27, and for men it was 30 years old. And the ages are even higher in urban areas. So what happened between 1950 and 2017 that caused such a dramatic shift? Why is it that young people seem to be staying single throughout their 20s and many of them on into their 30s? Why are they delaying marriage? I think there are a number of factors that go into this. No doubt chief among them are the changes in attitudes about marriage in the wake of the sexual revolution. In 1960, the FDA approves the birth control pill for contraceptive use. Thirteen years after that, 1973, the Supreme Court gives us Roe v. Wade, which enables legal abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. And so people over those decades begin to use those technologies to drive a wedge between sex and procreation. In our culture, that meant that people had been set free from the consequences of their own fertility. And so it became an era of free love. And with sex drives freed from the consequences of children, people began to conclude that marriage was no necessity either. If there need be no connection between sex and children, then there need be no connection between sex and marriage. You could have one without the other. And so now in 2017, it is quite normal for young people to delay marriage all the way through their 20s. But as they are delaying marriage, they are not delaying sexual experiences. In fact, with the use of dating apps, many young people are spending their 20s on countless premarital encounters. Add to that the explosion of pornography use, and you can understand that we are living in a day when men in particular have become less, become less interested in marriage and more interested in hookups. The delay of marriage, whatever its causes may be in our day, I think it's had an undeniable consequence in our culture. There are more singles today than there used to be. And that wider demographic difference means something very specific for us here. There are more singles in our churches than there used to be. Now, it's true that there are some who darken the door of the church, 
who are delaying marriage for all the wrong reasons that I just gave to you. That's not the case, though, for our single brothers and sisters in Christ who are here and who are not married. Many of them, you know, would like to be married. And they will tell you if you talk to them that they're single, not because they want to be, but because the, the opportunity just hasn't come yet in God's providence. And they aren't resisting marriage or the norms of marriage that we all hold to. It just, it just hasn't happened yet. Yesterday, I read a testimonial on the Christianity Today website from a woman who said this. I'm just going to read to you. She said, this is my story. This is my song. I am a 30-something single woman, and I have never been in a dating relationship. I have never had a boyfriend. I've never brought anyone home to meet my family. I've never been pursued or even sought after. In my 20s, people thought my singleness was endearing. In my late 20s, endearment regressed to bewilderment. As I entered my early 30s, bewilderment morphed into mystification. And now that I'm in my mid-30s, mystification has become downright weirdness. You go on and read the rest of the article. She's not spurning marriage. She feels like marriage is spurning her. And it's leaving her and her family and her friends. They're all just mystified about it. It wasn't anybody's plan. And what's hardest about this experience for single brothers and sisters is that they can be made to feel that strangeness and otherness when they come to church. And they wonder if they will be left out of the lives of their married friends who tend to gravitate toward one another and who can go and be too preoccupied with children and with busyness to include other folks in their lives. And so they wonder just ordinary things like, who am I going to sit with this Sunday? So on the one hand, they have the world trying to define singleness as the endless pursuit of unmarried hookups. And on the other hand, they've got brothers and sisters at church sometimes unaware or indifferent. And maybe treating them like they are not full members of the body of Christ until they get married. And I just want to say this morning, brothers and sisters, that ought not be. We have to get a nobler vision of singlehood before us. And that means we've got to get a biblical vision of singlehood before us, lest we run roughshod over one another. And I believe that's exactly what Paul gives to us in our text this morning. I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 25 to 40. Now, in these verses that we're looking at this morning, Paul is going to revisit the main theme from last week. Last week, we saw that Paul was giving an exhortation to everyone in the church to remain as you are. And he applied that principle to marriage, to circumcision, and to slavery. Now, in this text, Paul's going to apply this to singleness. Paul says in verse 26, it is good for a man to remain as he is. And so Paul's applying this principle to singleness and his application, we can divide it into three parts. Paul's going to give us and explain to us his preference for singleness in, 25, in verses 25 to 28. He's going to give us his reasons for singleness in verses 29 to 35. And then he's going to explain exceptions to singleness in verses 36 to 40. 
So first of all, Paul explains his preference for singleness in verses 25 to 28. Everybody look at verse 25. Paul says this, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, on that term betrothed, there's a bit, old, a, a bit of explanation that's in order here. That word translated betrothed is not actually uh, a term that means uh, engagement. It, it's the Greek term parthenos. And it occurs, that term occurs six times in this passage in verse 25, verse 28, verse 34, verse 36, verse 37, and verse 38. And the term parthenos means virgin. It's the same word that's applied to, to Mary, okay, in the Gospels. And it, it means virgin, and in particular, it refers to a young woman who is a virgin. Okay, if that's what that word means, then why in the world do translations like the ESV render it as betrothed? Well, in three of the six uses of this term in the chapter, that term virgin is, revert, is referred to as his virgin. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his virgin, but whoever, in verse 37, whoever is firmly established in his heart to keep her as his own virgin... He will do well. Verse 38. So then, he who marries his own virgin does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so, so the use of this term virgin in this chapter refers not to virgins in general, but to his virgin, it says. A virgin that is in some sense possessed by or related to a man. In what sense might we think of a virgin being possessed by or related to a man? Well, one popular interpretation that's reflected in some of the translations you're reading and one that's been popular throughout church history is this idea that it's a reference to a father's unmarried daughter. And so if you're reading the New American Standard Bible, it's going to reflect that interpretation. It, it actually translates the term as virgin daughter. And the entire passage, if, you, if it's read in that light, is then focused on whether a father should allow his virgin daughter to be married. That is one well-worn interpretation that's reflected in some of your translations. For a number of reasons, I think that's the wrong interpretation. And it does not best account for the language of the text. The other way to interpret this text is to understand his virgin as an engaged woman. And so on this understanding, the question at hand is not whether a father should allow his virgin daughter to be married, but whether an engaged man should go through with marriage to the woman he's engaged to. And so the ESV is trying to help you to see this by translating virgin as betrothed. That's why it's rendered like that. So what's that all mean? Well, Paul is just weighing in on whether or not these engaged singles should pursue marriage. That's what the passage is about. But before explaining this, Paul stipulates that he has no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Which means that he's about to give advice. He's not about to give a command. But the advice that he's giving is apostolic advice. Because he is one who by the mercy of the Lord has been made trustworthy. So it's advice, not a command, but it's apostolic. 
advice. Well, what does he advise? Look at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, some readers interpret that term distress to refer to the suffering that Jesus warned his followers about and that they would suffer for their faithfulness to the gospel. I don't think that that is what's, what, what Paul's talking about right here. That term that's translated as distressed is often used to mean simply necessity. It's used that way in chapter 7 and verse 37 and in chapter 9 and verse 16. If that's what it means, if it means necessity, then Paul's saying that the present necessity would refer to something else, not a distress. The, the necessity would refer to the, go, to the necessity for the gospel adva to advance in the last days. In view of all the gospel ministry that he has done, Paul is saying it is good for a person to remain as he is. And so that last phrase would best be rendered as it's good for a person to be thus or it's good for a person to be in this way in light of the present necessity. So why is Paul saying that it's good for a person to be this way? Well, he answers in verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Now, at first blush... I know I'm doing a lot of tinkering here with your translation, so forgive me for this. Um, at first blush, this looks like a digression about marriage. Okay, he's talking about singles, whether or not singles should get married. Now, all of a sudden, he's talking about bound to a wife, free from a wife. Um, I, I don't think this is a digression about marriage. And the, the word for wife is, is the same word that in Greek that's used for woman. And it depends on context, whether or not it's a wife or a woman. In this context, I think it makes more sense to understand this is just a reference to a woman. So what Paul means is, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. In other words, what Paul is saying is he's addressing the issue of engagement again with these singles. And he's saying, remain as you are. If you are engaged... Keep your commitment. If you are not, do not seek to be engaged. Stay just as you are. It's the same principle that we looked at last week, but now applied to singleness or to, in, to engagement. Now, it's apostolic advice, not an apostolic command. Paul makes that clear again in verse 28 because he says, But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed, if a virgin woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. So Paul has already said in verses 7 and 8 that he wishes everyone could be unmarried like he is. He has just said that those who are unengaged ought to stay that way. But just because that's Paul's calling, that doesn't mean that it's everybody's calling. So he clarifies that if someone decides to get engaged, to get married, that's totally fine too. It's not sin. Paul's just advising that if those folks do decide to get married, it's going to be hard. Marriage has difficulties. It can tear your heart out at times. And Paul wants to spare them from that. 
And here, I think, it kind of sounds like a guy who's speaking from experience. But here's the point. Paul says, remain as you are. If you are engaged, keep your commitment. If not, don't seek to be married or seek to become engaged. Verse 26 says that both the married state and the single state are good. That's what the text says. You know, in chapter 9, later, Paul asks a really telling question to the Corinthians. He's talking about himself, and he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Meaning, don't I have the right to get married and have, you know, be married as I'm out on my ministry travels and going around the Roman world? Don't I have a right to do that? Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Everybody else is doing it. Why can't I do it? Paul goes on to say that he doesn't do everything he has a right to do, in this case, get married. Because why? Because he views his singleness as an occasion for greater and wider ministry. He says in in chapter 9, verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. Paul saw singleness as a good, a good that he wished more brothers and sisters could share in. But here's the bottom line with all of this. Paul sees it as good. If that's the case, if he sees singleness as a good, we are not allowed to label it as a bad. Paul says in verse 26 that it's good for people to remain as they are, even if they're single. It's good to remain Engaged if they're engaged. It's good to remain single. Who are we to contradict Scripture to suggest that it can't be good? We're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul is, and he says that it's, it's good. What that means is that we have to figure out how to think about singleness in the same way that Paul thinks about it. And I say that knowing that many singles don't want to be single. Many of you would rather be married. You'd hope for that. But here's the thing. Paul says that it's good for you to remain as you are for as long as God in his wise providence may cause that to be. You are not less than until you are married. You are a child of almighty God. And he means to fill your single days For as long as they last, he means to fill them with meaning and purpose. You have the same Holy Spirit as the rest of us. You're an indispensable part of this body, and we are a family. Marriage or no marriage. That's what that means. But there's an implication here for those of us who aren't single, and I think it's good for us to take note of this. It is good and right for us to honor and esteem marriage in this church. We we try to do that. But we need to remember that God has put members into this body as he so desires. And he is putting single members in among us. And he's putting never been married among us. He's putting once married in among us. And if Paul is saying that singleness is good, then we must never act in word or in deed that that suggests singleness is not good. We have singles in our family and we dare not treat them in a way that suggests 
that they are less than a full member of the body of Christ until they are married. I think those are the clear implications of what Paul is saying here because Paul is clearly expressing in verses 25 to 28 a preference for singleness. But look at the second thing he says. He also gives his reasons for singleness in verses 29 to 35. Now, I labeled this point reasons for singleness, but it might be better labeled reasons for Paul's preference for singleness. Now, there are two reasons that Paul expresses for, for his preference here. He says, number one, marriage isn't ultimate, and two, marriage divides your attention. So look at verse 29 for the marriage isn't ultimate part. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. Now, I think that the time has been shortened, that phrase. Um, he, he means that the time is shortened in the sense that the last days were set in motion by the coming of Christ and by the outpouring of the Spirit. The future has been decisively shortened by those events. The resurrection of Jesus means that the end of the age is upon us. If that is true, then there are implications for how we are supposed to live our lives in the present. Paul says it in the second half of the verse. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, in the history of the church, some have taken that phrase there at the end of verse 29 to mean that even if you are married, you should behave as if you're not, meaning that married couples should be celibate within their own marriages. Now, I think that that's an overly literal reading of this. That, of course, is not what Paul means because it would completely contradict what he's already said earlier in the chapter about what the duties of marriage are. You remember that in, in verses 1 through 7. Paul says that he commands that they are regularly to come together in a conjugal union. So it's not talking about literal celibacy here. So what's going on? Paul is simply using overstatement about the present to underscore the reality of the future that is coming. In this case, it means that we should not live as if our marriages are ultimate. They're not. We will not be married to one another in the age to come. And Paul wants us to live our lives now in light of what is ultimate. And that is how we should take the rest of these statements. Look at verse 30. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What Paul means is that you're marrying, you're mourning, you're rejoicing, you're buying, and you're dealing in this world are not ultimate. And so you ought not to live as if they are ultimate. Why? Look at verse 31, the last part. For the present form of this world is passing away. That means that one day this fallen world is going to be judged. And all the stuff that people treat as ultimate will pass away. And if you've invested everything in this age, which is to be judged and destroyed, and you've invested nothing in the age to come, then you are above all people to be pitied. 
What that means is that even good things in this life, like marrying and buying and selling and rejoicing, even good things in this life can be turned into bad things when they are treated as ultimate things rather than pointers to ultimate things. And so that's why Paul is speaking about marriage the way that he is. Let those who are married act like they're not married. All he's trying to say is, is that it's not ultimate. And so Paul is saying, that's why I have a preference for singleness, because marriage isn't ultimate. But he also says, marriage divides your attention. Look at verse 32. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Well, the bottom line is this. Paul's trying to say, look, look it takes some doing to be married. And it takes more doing to be happily married. It takes time and attention. No matter how good the cause is, if you're a married person, you're not allowed to take time off from your marriage. You can't say, uh, you know, hey, honey, I'm, I'm going to leave for a while. I'm going to go out with Travis to India. Uh, you know, see you in a couple years. What's well, a good cause? Well, you still can't do that if you're married. Hey, sweetie, I'm going on a preaching tour. See you next Christmas. By the way, I put a mortgage on the house to pay for it. Don't forget to write. You can't do that because your spouse isn't your roommate. There's a relationship that has to be cultivated and cared for, as well as responsibilities for making a home together. So, so Paul, he's not trashing marriage here. He's just saying that the practicalities of marriage will likely limit some of your opportunities. And so he says this, verse 35. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. He's, he's not trying to restrain people from marrying. He's just trying to let them know the realities. Do you think that Paul would have been traveling all around the Roman world if he had a family to care for? Hey, probably not. I think his singleness was the precondition of his going to the uttermost part of the earth to preach the gospel where Christ had never been named. It was about this time, 10 years ago, that Susan and I were beginning to get ready to move here to Louisville. I was teaching at Criswell College in Dallas, Texas in 2008, and uh, Russell Moore showed up in Dallas, took me to dinner, and asked me to consider coming to Louisville to be the dean of Boyce College. And it took me about a millisecond to decide, yes, that's what I want to do. But the whole transition gave our family whiplash. Emily was two. Abby wasn't even two months. We had two babies in diapers. Susan was having trouble nursing and sleeping. And now, just as Susan had been home for a, a less than two months with the baby, she had finished her nesting, I was turning over the nest. And not only that, it was a short turnaround. 
we not only needed to sell our house, we also needed to do it quick. I needed to be in Louisville in late July. The only problem was this was the summer of 2008. You remember what happened summer of 2008? The housing bubble burst. The market bottomed out right as we were trying to sell our house. We couldn't sell it. I had to start the job in Louisville while Susan and the baby stayed in our unsold house in Dallas. And for the first month, I commuted back and forth between Louisville, Kentucky, and Dallas, Texas. These were not fun times. After a month of that, we just had to move everybody up. Left our house empty. We moved into an apartment on campus. Stuffed in with no baby beds, just... <laughs> what are those things called? Packing place. <laughs> anyway, we're all we're crammed into this, this apartment with the packing place and the two babies in diapers. And uh, that whole summer, I'm just drawing a picture here. There were no calamities in our life. It was just stressful. It was one of the most stressful times of our entire marriage. And Susan and I were both worn thin and hung out wet. And at one point, right before the move, I was trying to figure out what to do about a pulpit supply date that I had agreed to. I, I had agreed to, I can't remember when, sometime before that. And Susan and I were supposed to drive to Shreveport, Louisiana, to the church that I went to when I was in college, so that I could preach at, at that church. And the trip happened to fall on one of our very last weekends in Dallas. Susan had been nursing a newborn, taking care of a toddler, getting the house ready to sell. I, all the while I was trying to get ready for my job in Louisville. And here I was trying to take the family away for a weekend so I could preach in Shreveport. The prospect of making that trip at that time was such a burden on Susan for obvious reasons. Even if I would have gone alone and just tried to do it by myself, it would have left her holding the bag for a whole lot of things that needed to get done before we left. And yet, I still felt at that time the pull to go and to minister to the people who were at my church that I went to in college. I didn't want to let them down by canceling. Now, looking back now, it's really, it's really clear that the right decision was to cancel. Okay, I can see that's a slam dunk now, all right? But I was 10 years younger and dumber. <laughs> and at that time, I was, I was really torn about it. And, and I remember walking outside in our neighborhood in Dallas, talking to my former pastor from that church on the phone about that preaching date and all that we had on our place in Dallas. And I was just completely stressed out. And as we're talking, he, he graciously lets me off of the hook for the date. But the stress of those weeks and the months finally just caught up with me. And I hung up the phone. I sat down on the curb in our neighborhood in broad daylight, put my hands in my, put my face in my hands and just cried. I think this is what Paul's talking about. Such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. One who is married is concerned about the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. So don't get me wrong here. I'm not doing this. Paul's not doing this. He's not denigrating marriage. He's just not. God uses all of those things in our lives for, for, for good. Marriage is a glorious good thing. But it does, in fact, crowd out other glorious good things. And Paul wants single, single people to see that. 
He wants them to see that their singleness is ennobled by the opportunities that it provides them. Opportunities for ministry and for fruitfulness that they may not otherwise have. And Paul wants the entire church to see that and to value the providential gift that singleness can be, even for those who never asked for it. Even for those who who are struggling with it. So Paul, I think, is expressing a clear preference for singleness here. He's explained to us his, his reasons for his preference for singleness. But the final thing is, he's going to explain some exceptions to singleness. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, his virgin, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. Again, we might label this point exceptions to Paul's preference for singleness. We don't know what Paul means by not behaving properly towards his virgin. It's kind of an ambiguous phrase. Perhaps it means that he's, minis- he's mistreating her by engage- in getting engaged to her and then kind of reneging on this. It could mean that. In any case, Paul says that if his passions are strong and it ought to be thus, then he should go ahead and marry this woman that he's engaged to. There's no need to delay. There's no reason to you know, feel bad about that. When a desire for marriage and an opportunity for marriage come together, Paul says, go for it. There's no sin in that at all. But verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his virgin, he will do well. By which I think Paul means, if, if nobody's forcing you, if you have mastery over your own desires, and if you are resolved to be single, it's okay if you keep your virgin a virgin, which means it's okay not to marry her. In fact, Paul is stronger about it. He says that you do well not to go through with the marriage, which means I think he's saying it's okay to call off the engagement. Verse 38, so then he who marries his virgin does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Notice that Paul is now saying, again, what he asserted in verses 26 to 27, both marriage and singlehood are good, even though Paul prefers the latter. Nevertheless, they are both good, right? And then he adds one little detail about another class of single women in the congregation. Look at verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. All he's saying here is he's giving his advice that a woman whose husband dies, who's now single, she would do well to remain single. Remain as you are. She doesn't have to, but she does a good thing if she does. That's that's what he's adding there with those last two verses. So to wrap this up, Paul's given us a preference for showed us a preference for singleness. He's given us reasons for his preference for singleness. And now at the end, he's given us exceptions to this preference for singleness. 
Like he's pretty clear in all this. But I just want to finish by offering up some practical exhortations related to singleness and, and our life together as married and single people here in the church. And, and this isn't everything that can or, or should be said. These are just some things that, that, that were on my heart. First thing is this. Let's mix better than we currently do. Let's mix better together than we currently do. We can't all be together all the time like we are when we gather together here on Sunday mornings. Of, of necessity, our life together will include dinners and lunches and coffee with one another and in smaller groups between Sundays. That's what's, that's what's going to happen. We have choices about who we engage with in those moments. And we tend to focus, I think, we can tend to focus only on those people who are in our same age and stage of life. Which means, this is not just an application for how we think about married and singles, but it's an application how we think about old and young students and not students. Um, we, need, we need to kind of go out of our people who are in the same age and stage of life that we are. So married folks may have a tendency not to think about those who are unmarried, whether never married or widowed. And I'm very grateful, actually, that our small groups are intentionally mixing everybody together. Our Sunday schools sort of do this as well. I think it's a, a great thing. I think we could all probably do better in, in those other settings. And if you're not in a small group, I think that that's something that would help if you joined one. Second thing, let's think about how to fold people into our families. I think sometimes um, hospitality can be a kind of a cure-all for isolation. One of the best ways to get into somebody else's life, to get them into your life, is to just have them into your home. Have them for dinner. You'll be a blessing to your brothers and sisters, and they will be a blessing to you. Think about what your plans are for holidays. Think about what other people's plans are for holidays. Think about who you sit with at church on Sunday morning. Welcome one another and be welcomed by one another. Some of you are already doing a great job at this. Some of us need to do better. Third thing. As we think about singleness, let's, let's not treat singles as workhorses. Don't treat singles like they're simply our fleet of babysitters. Or like they're the ones who volunteer for every ministry of the church. Or that they must be here at the church every time the doors open. All of us, single or married, have full lives and interests. And we don't need to be presumptuous about loading people up with burdens too heavy for anybody to bear. Fourth thing. Understand that singleness, for some people, is a heavy burden. And I, I'm putting this in here because I was reading something last night by um, Carolyn McCulley, who is uh, a single woman. And she said this. She said, extended singleness is a form of suffering. There is an appropriate time for mourning with those who mourn. This is especially true for women who see the window of fertility closing on them without the hope of bearing children. Don't minimize the cumulative years of dashed hopes for unmarried adults. That said, we single adults need loving challenges when we have allowed a root of bitterness to spring up and block our prayers to God, our fellowship with others, and our service to the church. Deferred hopes cannot be allowed to corrode our thankfulness 
for the gift of salvation. So just remember that to be a member of the church means that we are to weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. We have brothers and sisters who have burdens. Those are our burdens too. And we enter into that. Last thing I'll say is this. Encourage one another. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. Lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And we urge you. This is 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that you have brought us here together by the blood of your own dear son who was crucified on the cross for us, for our sins, and who was raised three days later. We confess and believe this. And we believe that because of this, you have sown our lives together. Father, I pray you'd help us to see our blind spots and to see the areas in our lives corporately and individually where we could do better, where we could care for one another better. Help us to repent. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, not make us doleful, but that you would fill us with rejoicing, a rejoicing that is appropriate to the salvation that we enjoy. And so, Lord, I pray you'd fill us with joyful rejoicing and fellowship with one another. Whatever you have called us to in terms of our married state. And Father, I pray you would make us a countercultural witness to our community and to the world. So, Father, I ask you to do this among us for our good and your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.